Good morning, ABC. My name's Megan. I'm glad that you're joining us this morning. We've got a few things coming up at ABC that we want to make you aware of. We have a men's breakfast coming up on Saturday morning, October 23rd. So come on out and join us for that. And then the following day, Sunday the 24th, is our missions conference. And so that is going to be a dinner at five o'clock with a program following that. You'll get to hear um, from some of our missionaries, just learn how you can partner with them and with us in spreading the gospel. And then we have a fun Halloween event coming up. So this is going to be on Saturday, October 30th. It's called Light Up the Night. And we're partnering with several other churches in our community to just create a fun, safe event for our kids for Halloween. So this is a drive-through experience. And we're looking for people who are willing to help run a booth and also to donate some supplies for that. So if you're interested or available, we'd love to have you email Sandy and she can get you all of the information for that event. And finally, men, it is your chance to head up to Hume Lake this coming weekend. We um, have a group of guys heading up. It's actually Thursday through Sunday, so you get three nights up there. Um, it's October 14th through 17th, and you can sign up on the website. You can email, call the church office. They'll get you all of that information. should be a great weekend away. We are so glad that you're worshiping with us today. Have a great weekend. Well, welcome to ABC. Thanks for joining us online. Uh, I just want to mention uh, real briefly, if you're watching this, maybe you're traveling, uh, maybe you're, you're at home. Um, for whatever reason, you're tuning into the video this morning. Uh, just a reminder that we have three services on campus at ABC every Sunday morning. Uh, we're at 8 o'clock, and then we got an outdoor service at 9 o'clock and an indoor service at 1045. And we would love to have you join us. Um, not because you need to come to ABC, but because we believe you need community. You need Christian community. And uh, really would love for you to lean in and, and be connected, if you're not already, um, to our church in a meaningful way. And so come on down. Uh, we are in a series through the book of Titus that we're calling Guidance for Godliness. And uh, it's been a fantastic series already. Um, there's so much good truth here. Um, last week, we looked at just one verse. Um, Pastor Jake walked us through chapter two, verse one, all of 10 words. And I received a challenge from uh, one of our elders um, to take only five words and show Jake up. Um, I'm not gonna do that this morning. I'm gonna go for a few more verses. We're gonna uh, head on and do about 10 verses this morning. Um, but there's some really rich truth there that I'm excited to share with you. Um, when I was in college, uh, man, about 20 years ago, uh, 19 years ago to be exact, um, I was going to start dating my wife, Cheryl, and um, I had this mentor uh, guy who I was meeting with regularly. We were uh, working at a Christian camp up at Hume Lake, and I was meeting with this guy and processing through some life decisions and things with him, and uh, I started to talk with him about Cheryl, and he knew Cheryl very well because she had uh, spent a lot more time at that camp than I had, and um, and so I, I remember asking him, hey, what do you think about me hanging out with Cheryl, and you know, and um, and starting to start in a relationship with Cheryl. And he said just one line to me that I'll never forget. And uh, he looked at me and he said, Jeff, just be a godly man. That was his only advice to me pursuing a dating relationship, effectively sort of saying nothing and yet saying everything that he needed to say. 
If you think about what that means, what that statement means, just be a godly man. It wasn't saying much practically. What do I do? How do I do it? And how, what should I be careful of or watch out for? Or, um, you know, how should I protect her heart? All the things that I'm trying to, as a young man, think through, process through. He just simply said, be a godly man. And I believe he said everything in that line that he needed to say, because I knew what he meant by that was that I needed to have integrity, that I needed to revere God and the relationship um, with this this daughter of God that I was about to entertain a relationship with and that I needed to be a man of self-control, that I needed to be respectable, that I needed to be honorable. All the things that he needed to say, he said in that one line. And I think this morning as we jump into this passage and we look at what Paul is writing to Titus, he's essentially saying to all of us at whatever stage we're in, whatever life circumstance we're in, whether we're young or old or a woman or a man or pursuing a relationship or not, single or married, um, whatever our circumstance, he's saying, be a godly man, be a godly woman. Live a life of godliness. Regardless of your circumstance, live a godly life. Would you turn with me to Titus chapter 2? And uh, we're going to read verse 2 all the way through 10. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be, put, that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, there's a lot there and a lot of things we could lean into and kind of hone in on. Uh, man, some descriptions of older men, uh, older women, younger women, younger men, um, some descriptions of kind of some of the lifestyle stages, things that are happening, some of the social positions of people. And, and we're going to dive into some of that. But I think overall, what Paul is saying here, as we look through the outline of Titus is we start by saying, here's what, here's what an orderly church looks like. Let's have proper leadership in the church. Uh, and then he kind of gives a warning against false teaching. Beware of people who are trying to teach false doctrine, things that are going to distract and stray the church away. And then last week um, he says, now teach sound doctrine, teach the right truth, the right um, gospel so that you don't lose course. And now he's saying, here's how to be a healthy church. Here's what the old women should do. Here's what the older men should do. Here's what the young women should do. Here's what the young men should do. Here's what slaves should do. This is, this is the community that God has called them to. Here's how to live to have a healthy church. Addressing lots of different people groups, lots of different life stages, but obviously um, saying really the same message to all. Live a godly life. Now, there's an obvious distinction here that's made between younger and older. I think Paul is addressing the assumption that, that I often make or we often make that when I am older, I will be more even-tempered. 
When I am older, I will be more mature. When I am older, I will be more godly. As I progress in years, as I grow older, certainly then I'll have more refined character and have more godliness at that point. And I think he's um, providing a, a bit of a charge to the older generation and breaking down the assumption that that may in fact not be true. Now, I'm a mere 40 years old. I know to some of you, like my kids, they think that's really old. Some of you think I'm just a spring chicken, so keep that going. Uh, but Paul is likely writing here from his 60s, and he knew something of old age that I, I don't know yet. Many of you are aware of what Paul knew and understood of what happens in older age. John MacArthur writes from his 60s about aging. He says, increased age typically brings decreased energy diminished vision and hearing, more aches, more pains, and often more depression, hopelessness, and cynicism. Sounds pretty good, right? In the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, we're told, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. It's kind of a bleak picture of growing old. And yet, I think if we, if we really ask ourselves, what's the danger of going old, growing old without spiritual maturity? The danger is what he describes, cynicism, a bit of, of aches and pains and sort of moaning in, or bemoaning our, our age. That what Paul knew, and I think what John MacArthur is alluding to, is that zeal and passion and energy for godliness and the gospel can wane over time. That maturity in years doesn't always equal spiritual maturity. Now we wanna believe that's true, and I wanna believe that's true, and yet there's evidence, and I think here in the church in Crete, there was evidence of older men, older women, not necessarily progressing in spiritual maturity as they progressed in age. Older people need to work just as hard, if not harder, at living a temperate, godly lifestyle as the younger. And there's power in an older person then instructing a younger person and providing a um, godly example of what it looks like to pursue, pursue holiness. This is a biblical call to discipleship. If I could be so bold or presumptuous, uh, this morning to address anyone who finds themselves um, older in age, maybe in their 60s, 70s, 80s, at a life stage where you're likely not raising children in the home or at a life stage where you're likely not navigating a new career, dealing with some of those early life stage challenges, making decisions and you know, home purchases and improvements and some of the things that we dedicate as younger men and women so much time and energy into as we process through the way our, our culture has it be, that some of you would have time and resource to give to a younger generation, to teach younger men, to teach younger women. You have more to offer than you realize. That your years and your age and your history and experience provides a well, a deep well of knowledge and resource for those of us who are younger. Our young church members at ABC desperately need your wisdom, your counsel, your spiritual example, your time. There's beautiful examples already 
happening of this in our church context. We have a mom-to-mom group where we have mentor moms sitting around the table with younger women, pouring into them, praying for them, giving them counsel and advice. We have Bible studies where there's multi-generations of men at the table. You have um, men in their 60s or 70s that are sitting with men in their 30s or 20s that are processing through some of their hard decisions and their life circumstances together. Um, We have the crew that meets here on Thursdays where we've got um, some of the retired guys pouring into some of the young working men that are still working through processing, figuring out their careers and their businesses. And um, there's a lot of that happening and it's really good to see at ABC. And this is Paul's charge to the church in Crete. Older men, older women, would you invest in younger women? But it starts, and younger men, but it starts with living a godly life. It's the first point there on your outline, verses two and three. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfast. Older women likewise, similarly, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. Live a godly life. Start with a pursuit of a tempered life, of a self-controlled life, of a revering, reverent life, a, a view of God that's appropriate, that's big enough. A pace and cadence that that is abiding and resting in in Christ and what he's called us to in prayer. Live a godly life. Here's some of the adjectives he uses to describe these people. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, loving, steadfast, reverent, kind, submissive, integrate. That Paul is calling this older generation to live this godly life as a shining example, not only to the world, but also to the younger generations. When I string these words together, it provides this beautiful picture in my mind of what godliness is. Tempered, thoughtful, not brash, not cynical, but respectable. A godly life. Interestingly enough, some of these things, most of these things, are actually counter to some of the most typical tendencies of younger people right? Being young sometimes means you think before you, or you speak before you think. Being young sometimes means you share opinions openly. You buck the system. You live in the moment. You do whatever it takes to get ahead. Youthfulness brings energy and zeal and sometimes a lack of thoughtfulness or cadence, a lack of pace, a lack of reverence, a lack of respect for, for the past. And so older men, Older women, teach young men and young women to behave like this, to live a godly life. Disciple them. Teach others, instruct others in this godly life. And the second point there, discipling others in a godly life. Look at verse four to six. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may, be, may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. Now, I don't want you to get held up on the gender distinction that exists here. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Um, so don't, don't worry right now about how Paul is um, speaking specific things to men versus women, we're going to come back and kind of look at the categorical references that he's making here. But there is an assumption that young men and women were not 
living self-controlled lives, that they were not a model of good works, that they were not pure or kind or respectable. And Paul is saying to the older men and the older women in this context, that is on you. If the younger men and the younger women are not living as they should, godly lives, if there's an easy um, complaint that would come off of your tongue about the younger generation, if you start to feel cynical, if you start to feel a little bit uh, disenfranchised by the younger generation and the way kids are growing up these days, he is saying to the older men and the older women, that is on you. It's your responsibility with all of the grief Uh, that I hear of today over the millennial generation or the Gen Z generation and and people just um, sort of uh, sighing whenever uh, the the word youth is brought up or the word younger generation or kids these days is is brought up. It's, It's on us. There's no room for complaint. There's only one group to look at for the spiritual maturity of, of those of our students and college-age people and young couples that are coming up in our community, in our world, there's only one place to point the finger. It's not too late either. It's not too late for older men and, and older women to disciple the next generation of younger men and younger women to lead them into a godly lifestyle. But you know what it requires, and this is really hard, and, and on, honestly, I think it's why it doesn't happen more often, is it requires a godly life. It, it requires that older men and older women, even people of, of my age, looking at a 25-year-old and being able to say, I'm going to start by living a godly life, by being respectable, by being self-controlled, by being reverent by being submissive, that I'm gonna do everything that Paul is asking for them to do so that when I sit down and process with someone who I feel needs a little bit of spiritual growth and maturity, I'm able to say, I'm pursuing a godly life, so do as I do. That's the hardest way to disciple. Easier to just tell somebody, this is what you should do. Far harder to live it out and display the godly life as the world watches on. Point three there, display this godly life. In verse seven, he continues on. Show yourself then in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. This is a display sentence. And sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Live above reproach, Paul says. Put the naysayers to shame. Prove that godliness is a worthy pursuit. Shut them down. Quiet them up. Don't give anyone opportunity to say, but you live this way and preach this way, but you're not living a godly life, so why should I? Quiet down the opposing voices by living a godly life. No matter who you are, your age, gender, job, circumstance, live a godly life. It says, very little and yet says nearly everything that Paul wants to say. There's this distinction uh, between five different groups in this passage. There's older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. Five distinct groups that Paul points to. And, And I think we're tempted when we read a passage like this to use these distinctions and the fact that Paul is addressing specific people groups to draw some 
conclusions, to draw some uh, doctrinal conclusions about these groups. And I want you to resist that temptation not to misread or misinterpret Scripture with these things in mind. This is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text as it relates to those five groups. It's prescriptive in terms of, yes, do this, live a godly life, but not prescriptive in terms of be this particular type of group. Do you get the difference? That Paul is actually describing the historical moment, the historical context. There are slaves. There are older women. There are younger women. There are women who work in the home. There are men who work outside of the home. He's describing these different socioeconomic, age and stage, gender groups. He's not prescribing it though. And it's different than using a text like this to say, well, because it's described, then obviously scripture condones that principle which is just simply not true. Paul is saying, Christian, if you're a slave, be a godly slave. Act this way. Christian, if you're a young woman, if you work at home, then do it this way. Christian, if you're an older man, then here's how to do it. Be a godly older man. He's not prescribing being an old man or prescribing being a young woman or prescribing, frankly, being a slave in that same environment. This passage, it's so important that you don't take a passage like this and use it to build circumstantial arguments for doctrine related to gender roles, work roles, slavery, etc. Let me say that again. Passages like this passage that are descriptive of a historical moment ought not be used to argue for or against that particular context. We don't build a doctrine of slavery out of a passage that speaks to slaves. This is where the deductive reasoning um, that Jake alluded to last week comes into play. It would be like saying, Paul is addressing slaves, therefore Paul must be pro-slavery. You can't draw that conclusion just because he addresses slaves. I think it's really important that we, we simply extract what his message is to these groups, which to me is very clear, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of if you're older man, younger man, older woman, younger woman, if you're a slave, if you work outside the home, if you work in the home, if you, whatever your context is, whatever your circumstance, live a godly life. And then he tells us how to do it. Here's how to live a godly life. Here are the principles. That's what this passage is about. Whenever we come up um, to a, a moment like this, though, I think we'd be a little bit tone deaf if we breezed through it and didn't ask ourselves, well, what does the Bible teach about slavery? He says in verse 9, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Again, talking about the behavior of a slave. And I just want to very quickly mention uh, we don't have time to dive in and do a full um, kind of biblical exposition of slavery, but I want to just mention that I do not believe, nor do I see biblical defense of Paul or anyone else in the Bible um, being pro-slavery. The Bible speaks to slavery. It speaks of slavery. If you go uh, all the way back um, to Genesis and you work your way through Revelation and you start to kind of uh, ask yourself, what is the overarching narrative of slavery in the Bible? Most often the context is the treatment. It's the elevation of a slave to a human personhood that you would not treat slaves different than you would treat anyone else. And so the Bible's more concerned and not about 
um, the fact that slavery is, is good or bad and more concerned with how do you treat people. And the reason is because a lot of the slavery originated way back in kind of the ancient times um, by crime. So rather than someone being in prison, they would be indebted to the person they committed a crime to, or if they actually had a debt or owed a debt, they could sell themselves as an indentured servant to that party and have a debt. And that debt was typically only lasting for seven years. Um, At most, it would last 50 years. And so uh, oftentimes there was slavery that was self-imposed, if you want to look at it that way. And so the Bible is basically teaching if there is a slave, if there is an indentured servant, if someone has a debt they owe to you, then treat them like a human. Going all the way back to Genesis uh, chapter 2, when God created man and he gave man dominion, when he gave humans dominion over the earth, over to, to subdue the, the ground and the earth, to work and plow the ground and to subdue animals, that dominion did not include other human beings. God did not give dominion at the point of creation over other human beings. I want that to be very clear. Nor do I find that any other place in scripture where there would be an entire group of people viewed at any different level in the eyes of God as co-created people, that God created people as co-heirs, that they all look in the image of Christ, in the image of God, that those groups of people would be viewed any differently, that any people group should subdue another people group. That's not in scripture. And again, I wish we had time to really dive through it and and walk through it, but I just don't see a clear defense for any kind of slavery in the Bible. I think that's really important just to point out, um, really, if you want to see the heart of of Paul, um, which I think represents the heart of Christ and the heart of God towards slavery, read the book of Philemon. It's actually just the next page after Titus in your Bible. Very short little book. It's a letter written to Philemon, who was a slave owner, And it's written on behalf of Philemon's slave, a guy by the name of Onesimus. And Paul writes on behalf of Onesimus, and he asks Philemon to accept Onesimus back into his home as a brother. To accept him back as a partner in ministry. This is far more valuable to you as a partner and a brother in Christ than he ever was as a slave. And by the way, Paul says, if he has any debt that's owed to you, if he stole anything from you, I will pay for it myself. Paul has a heart to see humanity elevated, human rights at the forefront, equality of every human being and every people group maintained with the way God intended it at creation. And we can discuss that further if if you want. Uh, I wish we had time to dive into it, but... I want to I want to just simply note that the fact Paul is addressing slaves and slave owners at different areas is not condoning slavery it's it's addressing people in the circumstance where they're at and his message is the same live a godly life Are you a slave be godly Are you a young woman? Be godly. Are you a young man? Be godly. Are you a laborer? Be godly. Are you a business owner? Be godly. Be a man of God. Be a woman of God. Whatever your circumstance. Whatever circumstance may even be unfavorable. Are you single and you don't want to be? Be godly in your singleness. Are you a stay-at-home dad or a stay-at-home mom? Be godly in that 
pursuit? Are you a homeschooler? Do it with godliness. Are you unemployed or in a challenging work environment um, or in a hostile classroom? Do it with godliness. That's the message that God calls us to the same degree of godliness as those who seem to have more favorable circumstances. Let me say that again. God calls us all to the same degree of godliness as those who appear to have more favorable circumstances. That's really easy to do. Right, to look at someone else and say, well, if I had their circumstance, if I lived their lifestyle, then certainly I could pursue more godliness, right? If I was a pastor like Jeff, who apparently gets paid to read scripture and paid to pray, then certainly I'd have a more godly life. Or you could look at someone who has a little bit more flexibility in their schedule and say, well, if I had that kind of freedom in my day and my week and I could spend more time with people like that and sit down and have coffee like looks like all these people have time to do, then certainly I would be more focused on community and relationships and more godly and maybe more temperate and maybe more patient because I wasn't so stretched thin. It's so easy to do that. And yet what God is calling us to, what Paul is calling us to, regardless of your circumstance, live a godly life, even if they have more favorable circumstances than you. The easiest thing in the world for me to compare is, uh, is finances, right? Like, I do this all the time. I look at somebody and go, sure. I mean, if I had that kind of money, I would be, you know, as free-spirited as they are and without as much anxiety or stress. If only I had that job, well, yeah, I'd be pretty happy too. I'd be pretty godly too. I could spend more time on focusing on my family too if I took three-hour breaks in the middle of the day to go exercise, I would be in shape too, right? But I don't have those circumstances. And I think that's the point of the passage here, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of what position you find yourself in, live a godly life, do the right thing, be a person of integrity, live in your circumstance with godliness, showing good faith. Look at this last line. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. I think the challenge that, that we have when we come upon a passage like this is it's, it's sort of easy to, to explain away, at least for me. I read through this and go, yeah, yeah, okay. Dignified, self-controlled, sound of mind, love, steadfast. Those things will come. That's what my tendency is, is to think those things will come, that, that I'll, I'll grow in those areas someday. Those things take time. I, we're not living in a microwave. We're living in an oven, you know? Like, it's, it takes me a while to process through things, that God is working slowly on me. And it's interesting that he would start with older men and older women because I think he's calling out that notion that someday I will fill in the blank. I think Paul is saying as clearly as he can say in this moment, in this passage, the day is now. It's, it's time. You may have had years. You may have had months or you may have had weeks if you're a new believer to process through and understand what this means. But, but Paul is saying it's now. The time is now. There is no, there is no uh, lengthy, um, slow-cooking uh, kind of 
potential here for now over time yes we grow in maturity and we grow in years and we grow in wisdom but what he's saying is the time is now don't wait any longer because there's some people that grew old and they actually never spiritually matured and pursued a life of godliness so do it now and by the way if you are old and you have those years of experience and you have processed through some of these life circumstances he's saying now teach the others to do it as well it's a clear message of discipleship and a clear message of godliness that i think has urgency that making the way of Jesus as they were attempting to do to the island in Crete, making the the godly life look attractive so that the world that was looking on would be silenced, the naysayers would be quieted because living a godly life was just so attractive. And the younger generation that was watching on would say, I want to be like that when I grow up. That's the kind of person, that's the kind of man, or that's the kind of woman I want to be. Live a godly life. It sort of says nothing and kind of says everything, right? Everything that I need to say in one sentence, be a godly man, be a godly woman. Live a godly life. And then a list to follow of how to do that and how to process through that. My hope and prayer as we walk through passages like this is that there will be some very simple steps. As I I read through this, there's some very, very simple things and yet some really hard things. But, But wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, wherever you're at in your process with Christ and with others as you grow, my hope for you is that you could grab onto one principle. As you read through this list, and there's one very simple sentence that says in steadfastness be sober-minded and self-controlled if it was if it was the hardest thing in the world you know to do let's boil it down to the simplest thing and that's be self-controlled don't give in to all of the worldly temptations sober-minded self-controlled if there was just one thing you could grab onto read through that list process through it pray say god what would you have me do what would you have me pursue is it as simple as being self-controlled is it simple as being sober-minded is it as simple as just being faithful in the work that i have to do today that we would pursue godly lives regardless of our circumstance i want to pray for you that god would continue to lead you that way father we're trusting and believing that you have work on us yet to do. God, we're trusting and believing that uh, you're calling us to more. And I know and believe, Lord, that it just won't happen um, without intentionality. It doesn't happen by default. And I think that's one of the hardest things for us to to hear and believe is that uh, growing older doesn't mean we grow wiser or more godly or more self-controlled or more tempered. Growing older just means we grow older. So I ask, Lord, that you'd give us some steps and some tools, God. Give us some wisdom from your word that would help us as we grow, Lord, as we age, to continue moving towards a godly life. And if it's grabbing on a few of these principles, being self-controlled or being sober-minded or being dignified or having more reverence, taking the time to revere you and revere others, to have respect and honor for others, God, help us to do so. And may we grow in you every single day. 
and may we learn how to teach others. May we be um, men and women who take initiative in teaching younger men and women, discipling them in a godly life. We trust you to lead and trust you to provide. In your precious name I pray, amen.